0: Supreme Court Update The Crown Against Kalman 2019, SCC 6 The accused was charged with second-degree murder and with indecent interference with human remains in the death of his domestic partner. He pled guilty to the interference charge and was found guilty of second-degree murder by a jury. The murder conviction was set aside by the Court of Appeal, And a new trial was ordered on the charge of manslaughter the majority of the court of appeal held that the trial judge had failed to properly instruct the jury on the use of the evidence of the accused's after-the-fact conduct which included evidence that the accused had moved burned and disposed of his partner's body as it related to proof of intent for second-degree murder held justice martin dissenting in part and justice karakatsanis dissenting the appeal should be allowed, and the accused's conviction for second-degree murder restored, per Justices Moldaver, Gascon, and Rowe. There is agreement with Justice Martin that the evidence of the accused's after-the-fact conduct was admissible as circumstantial evidence on both the issue of causation and the mental element for second-degree murder. However, there is disagreement with Justice Martin on the question of whether the trial judge was required to provide a limiting instruction against general propensity reasoning. Although the trial judge could have given such an instruction, the fact that he did not do so does not amount to a reversible error. When the trial judge's charge is considered fairly, contextually, and as a whole, the jury was properly equipped to decide the case in the absence of such an instruction. There is agreement with Justice Martin's articulation of the legal principles governing the admissibility of discreditable conduct evidence and its potential for moral and reasoning prejudice. However, there is disagreement with her application of those principles to the facts of this case. Allegations of non-discretion amounting to misdirection must be assessed contextually in line with the facts and circumstances of the particular case. At trial, the Crown led relevant and admissible evidence of discreditable conduct on the accused part that was extrinsic to the offence charged and which can be divided temporally into two broad categories, conduct which preceded the victim's death and conduct which ensued it. This evidence did not pose such an elevated risk of propensity reasoning that the trial judge was required to provide a limiting instruction against general propensity reasoning. First, the risk that the jury would engage in general propensity reasoning based on the evidence of the accused's after-the-fact conduct was considerably offset by the trial judge's introductory and final jury instructions, which were neutral, fair, and balanced. The trial judge's opening instructions and his answer to a question from the jury Insulated the jury from reasoning that the accused guilty plea to indecent interference with the victim's remains meant that it was more likely that he committed second-degree murder. Furthermore, when the trial judge's final instructions are read fully and fairly, it is clear that he properly equipped the jury to make reasonable inferences from the circumstantial evidence without resorting to specious reasoning or speculation. Second, experienced defense counsel, well aware of the issue of potential propensity reasoning, did not raise that issue, much less seek a limiting instruction during the pre-charge conference while vetting the proposed final jury instructions. Defense counsel was in the best position to assess whether, in the concrete reality of the case at hand, a limiting instruction against general propensity reasoning was desirable. His failure to object to the absence of limiting instructions may be taken as an indication that he felt such an instruction would not have been in the accused's interest and that it was a deliberate tactical decision. These considerations weigh heavily against concluding the charge was deficient. Rather than seeking a limiting instruction against general propensity reasoning, the accused adopted a strategy of using the discreditable conduct to bolster the credibility of his exculpatory statement and reenactment, upon which his defense of accidental death rested. That the defense adopted a deliberate strategy to use the discreditable conduct evidence to its own advantage is an important factor that distinguishes this case from others where the discreditable conduct evidence plays no part in the defense theory and is little more than a breeding ground for the moral and reasoning prejudice about which Justice Martin expresses concern. Given the strategy adopted by the defense, A limiting instruction against general propensity reasoning would have risked highlighting the negative impact of the accused's discreditable conduct on his credibility and thereby unraveling his defense, a risk which the defense chose not to take. The defense made a legitimate tactical decision at trial and lost, and it must live with the consequences of that decision. The accused had a fair trial. The jury instructions, which both the Crown and Defense counsel evidently considered to be fair and balanced, properly equipped the jury with the tools they needed to decide the case before it, and, in particular, adequately guarded against the risk of general propensity reasoning. That they could have been more fulsome is not the issue. In the circumstances, the principle of finality must prevail. Per Justice Martin, dissenting in part. The -the after-the-fact conduct evidence in this case was admissible for the purposes of determining both causation and intent, and the jury charge was sufficient to explain the uses that could be made of this after-the-fact conduct evidence and the possible general risks that it posed. However, there is disagreement with the majority that the jury instructions adequately guarded against the risk of propensity reasoning. The jury ought to have been warned about the specific risks of prohibited propensity reasoning associated with the after-the-fact conduct, as well as other evidence about the accused's character, conduct, and lifestyle. The appeal should therefore be allowed in part. The decision of the Court of Appeal to set aside the accused second-degree murder conviction should be upheld. However, a new trial should be ordered on the charge of second-degree murder. After-the-fact conduct encompasses what the accused both said and did after the offense charged in the indictment was allegedly committed. And it is highly context and fact specific after the fact conduct is circumstantial evidence and, like other forms of circumstantial evidence, it allows a fact finder to draw particular inferences based on a person's words or actions. A range of inferences may be drawn from the after the fact conduct evidence, but in order to draw inferences, the decision maker relies on logic, common sense and experience. It will be for the jury or judge to determine which inferences they accept and the weight they ascribe to them. When evidence is admissible for one purpose but not another, the finder of fact whether the judge or jury needs to be mindful of and respectful of its permissible and impermissible uses. In such cases, a specific instruction to a jury that certain evidence has a limited use or is of limited or no probative value on a particular issue is required. After the fact, conduct evidence may give rise to imprecise reasoning because of its temporal element and may encourage decision-makers to jump to questionable conclusions. To meet the general concern that such evidence may be highly ambiguous and susceptible to jury error, the jury must be told to take into account alternative explanations for the accused behavior. In this way, jurors are instructed to avoid a mistaken leap from such evidence to a conclusion of guilt where the conduct may be motivated by or attributable to panic, embarrassment, fear of false accusation, or some other innocent explanation. Trial judges should also consider whether any further specific limiting instructions or cautions may be required to counter any of the specific reasoning risks associated with the particular after-the-fact conduct in issue. There is no legal impediment to using after-the-fact conduct evidence in determining the accused's intent. Whether or not a given instance of after-the-fact conduct has probative value with respect to the accused level of culpability depends entirely on the specific nature of the conduct, its relationship to the record as a whole, and the issues raised at trial. What steps were taken, when they were taken, and at what risk may all be factors to consider when assessing the nature of the conduct in a particular case. Finally, When assessing the actions of an accused and the inferences that may be drawn from the -the after-the-fact conduct at the admissibility or no probative value stage, the trial judge may take into account the disproportionality between the explanation proffered and the conduct at issue. It is an error to relegate after-the-fact conduct evidence to a supporting or secondary role, and there is a need to maintain the distinction between the threshold admissibility of evidence and the separate issue of whether the Crown has met its ultimate burden of establishing guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt. The test for the admission of evidence is first focused on relevance and the tendency of the evidence to make the proposition for which it is advanced more likely than the proposition would be in the absence of that evidence. It is at the end of the case, when all the evidence has been heard, that the fact finder is required to determine how much, if any weight, They will place on this evidence how it fits with other evidence and whether, based on the totality of the evidence, the crown has proved the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. The absence of supporting physical evidence does not, as a general rule, make the inference sought speculative. If the totality of the evidence satisfies the chain of reasoning for a particular inference, then that inference is available, regardless of whether supporting physical evidence is part of the evidentiary record. The mere existence of two or more plausible explanations for given after-the-fact conduct does not make that conduct equally consistent with those explanations such that a proffered inference may lose its probative force. The fact that multiple explanations can be produced for after-the-fact conduct does not automatically mean that the conduct is equally consistent with multiple offenses. It simply means that alternative explanations exist and are arguable. As long as the evidence is more capable of supporting the inference sought than alternative inferences, then it is up to the finder of fact, after considering all explanations, to determine what, if any, inference is accepted, and the weight, if any, to be provided to a piece of circumstantial evidence. Here, the nature of the conduct, the accused's successful destruction of the deceased body, and with it any evidence of her injuries, its relationship to the evidentiary record, which includes evidence of a relationship fraught with discord, including violence and threats of suicide, and the issues raised at trial, the Crown's theory that the accused destroyed the body to hide the nature and extent of the injuries, indicate that the evidence was relevant to the accused's level of culpability. The -the after-the-fact conduct evidence makes the proposition that the accused intended to cause the deceased's bodily harm knowing that it was likely to cause her death and was reckless as to whether death ensued more likely than the proposition would be in the absence of this evidence it was open to the trial judge to determine that the accused attempts to conceal and destroy the deceased body were out of proportion to either the claim that this was an accidental death and or to the offense of manslaughter the relevant reasonable and rational inference that the jury could draw Regarding the accused level of culpability on the basis of the -the after-the-fact conduct evidence is that the accused concealed and destroyed the deceased's body in order to conceal the nature and extent of her injuries and the degree of force required to inflict them. His successful destruction of the evidence is out of all proportion to the explanation put forward of an accident and could support the inference that the accused sought to conceal this evidence and to hide not only the existence of the crime but its extent. Trial judges bear the ultimate responsibility for the content, accuracy, and fairness of the jury charge. But both Crown and Defense counsel are obliged to assist the trial judge and identify what in their opinion is problematic with the judge's instructions to the jury. Jury charges do not have to adhere to prescriptive formulas. It is the substance of the charge that matters. There is agreement with the majority that the jury charge in this case adequately guarded against the risks that are generally associated with after-the-fact conduct evidence. The jury instructions adequately differentiated between using the -the after-the-fact conduct evidence in relation to causation and intent. This case, however, would be very close to the line when it comes to determining whether the Crown met its ultimate burden of establishing each constituent element of the second-degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt there was no evidence as to the cause of death other than the accused's statement and his after-the-fact conduct the case was based on circumstantial evidence and the jury was asked to engage in inferential reasoning and there were reasonable inferences other than murder which could be drawn from the evidence further the fine line between innocence and guilt was reflected in the fact that not only were the judges divided on the main legal issues but the accused was discharged at a preliminary inquiry. In admitting the contested after the fact conduct evidence, the trial judge correctly decided that the probative value of the evidence outweighed its prejudicial effects. However, the conclusion that the evidence was more probative than prejudicial did not negate the trial judge's responsibility to meet and address any specific propensity prejudice of that evidence in the jury charge. Clear instructions to the jury about the uses that they could and could not make of this discreditable conduct evidence were essential. The -the after-the-fact conduct evidence, while admissible for the purposes of causation and intent, bore all the hallmarks of propensity evidence that could, absent proper limiting instructions, import both moral prejudice and reasoning into the jury's analysis. The nature of the accused's after-the-fact conduct was likely to elicit a strong emotional reaction in the jurors. Burning the deceased's body was morally and viscerally repugnant. The disturbing nature of the conduct was made clear to the jury. The nature of the evidence, while admissible, ushered in a significant risk that the accused would be convicted of second-degree murder not because the jury had concluded beyond a reasonable doubt that he had killed the deceased, but because his after-the-fact conduct had convinced the jurors that he was a sort of person who would kill. There was further a risk of reasoning prejudice. As the jurors assessed whether the totality of the evidence established causation and intent beyond a reasonable doubt, they were likely to be experiencing the precise mix of revulsion and condemnation that could deflect them from a rational and dispassionate analysis of the evidence. Without an express limiting instruction, Jurors cannot be expected to know that at the same time that they are being told to use common sense, they are in fact prohibited from engaging in what many jurors may also see as just another form of common sense reasoning, propensity reasoning. The reason judges caution against propensity reasoning is precisely because this form of thinking is recognized as being so intuitive and powerful. In this instance, the jurors could not have understood the potentially poisonous nature of propensity evidence and the manner in which the law has circumscribed its use without an express instruction on the issue. The failure of the trial judge to provide a limiting instruction on propensity and reasoning is best seen here as an error of law under section 686 sub 1 sub a sub 2 of the criminal code. There is an undeniable connection between the allegation of an unreasonable verdict and an error of law because the error of law meant that the jury was not properly instructed and was not therefore equipped to reach a reasonable verdict. Given that this was an error of law, the Crown would be able to rely on the curative provisio if the legal error was harmless or if the evidence against the accused was so overwhelming that a trier of fact would inevitably convict. In this case, however, the legal error was not harmless. Even though the jury charge does not have to be perfect, this was a single omission in a comprehensive charge, the trial judge's failure to provide a limiting instruction on propensity resulted in a jury that was not properly instructed to assess the key piece of evidence supporting the Crown's theory of guilt. Further, the evidence was not such that the jury would inevitably convict on second-degree murder. It was open to the jury to conclude that the evidence did not establish any criminal culpability. A verdict of not guilty or guilty on manslaughter rather than murder, was also possible in this case. The reasonableness of any verdict of second degree murder could only be assessed if the jurors knew that they could not reason that because the accused destroyed the deceased body in a manner that he did, he was the type of person who would have murdered her. The trial judge's instructions were not correct in law on this point, and the remedy is not an acquittal, but a new trial. There is disagreement with the majority that defense counsel's failure to request a limiting instruction against general propensity reasoning at the pre-charge conference may be reasonably taken as an indication that defense counsel considered the charge to be satisfactory and that a limiting instruction would not be in his client's interests. Great caution needs to be used when speculating about why counsel acted in a particular manner at trial. Whether the defense counsel's decisions were tactical or not A lawyer's position on the appropriate parameters of a jury charge, driven by tactical considerations, cannot change the law that a jury that engages in propensity reasoning is a jury that is not acting judicially. Lastly, the principle of finality does not come into play in the manner framed by the majority. This is not a case in which the defense made a legitimate tactical decision at trial and lost. Rather, this is a case in which regardless of defense counsel's tactical decisions, the jury was not properly instructed and was therefore unable to reach a reasonable verdict. At stake was nothing less than the accused's rights to a fair trial based on lawful reasoning. When an individual is at risk of wrongful conviction, the principle of trial fairness outweighs that of finality, as it is a fundamental principle of justice, protected by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that the innocent must not be convicted. In the case at Bar, the jury was presented with highly prejudicial conduct evidence and was not adequately instructed on the prohibited uses of that evidence. The risk that the jury engaged in propensity reasoning is real and directly undermined the accused's right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. In such circumstances, the principle of finality cannot, and does not, supersede the accused's right to a fair trial per Justice Karakatsanis dissenting. There is agreement with the general principles set out by Justice Martin regarding the admissibility of the -the after-the-fact conduct, but there is disagreement with Justice Martin and the majority on the application of those principles to the evidence of this case. The evidence in this case was not probative of intent for murder and a directed verdict of acquittal should have been granted. The appeal should be dismissed. Evidence of after-the-fact conduct is not fundamentally different from other types of circumstantial evidence and may be used to demonstrate culpability. In certain circumstances, it may also be used to ground an inference with respect to an accused's degree of culpability, that is, whether the accused had the mens rea required for a given offense. However, its relevance and probative value must be assessed on a case-by-case basis. Whether or not after the fact conduct is probative with respect to an accused' intent for a specific offense depends entirely on the specific nature of the conduct, its relationship to the record as a whole, and the issues raised. To be relevant, such evidence must have some tendency to make the proposition for which it is advanced more likely than the proposition would be in the absence of that evidence. However, If conduct could be equally explained by, or equally consistent with, two or more offenses, it is not probative with respect to determining guilt as between the offenses. Admissibility of evidence as to the estate of the accused mind at the time of the offense turns on whether the -the after-the-fact conduct is capable of being more consistent with intent for murder than with manslaughter. It falls to the jury to determine whether the conduct was or was not, equally consistent with murder and manslaughter beyond a reasonable doubt, if they can do so based on common sense, experience, and logic, rather than bare speculation. However, a trial judge does not usurp a jury's function by determining the conduct could not, in the circumstances of the case, assist in differentiating between second-degree murder and manslaughter and is thus inadmissible as evidence of the specific intent required for second-degree murder. In this case, the accused's destruction of the deceased's body was inadmissible as evidence of intent for second degree murder. While the accused's conduct in destroying the body is relevant to the issue of whether he law- unlawfully caused the deceased's death, and was admissible for that purpose, it cannot assist in distinguishing between manslaughter and second degree murder. The evidence here did not yield any information about the extent of the injuries. Without evidence to that effect, an inference regarding mens rea is grounded on speculation about what the evidence might have revealed about the injuries there is no logical connection linking the after-the-fact conduct evidence in this case to an intent for second-degree murder that does not equally speak to the possibility of manslaughter it flies in the face of logic to suggest that a person would only go to great lengths to cover up an intentional homicide but not an unintentional one further The evidence relating to motive and animus here cannot assist the jury in finding that the -the after-the-fact conduct makes it more likely that the accused had the intent for second degree murder rather than manslaughter, because it is equally supportive of both. There is agreement with Justice Martin that the failure to provide instructions warning the jury of the dangers of propensity reasoning requires a new trial in this case. Because the -the after-the-fact conduct evidence was admissible to show culpable homicide, but not prove second-degree murder, the jury required strong direction as to the limitations of its use. The evidence relating to the relationship between the accused and the deceased and to the circumstances surrounding the day of the deceased's death did not provide any evidence upon which a reasonable jury, properly instructed, could find the accused guilty of second-degree murder.